Hello and welcome to episode 39 of Of Poetry Podcast with the poet Stephen Leva. Stephen Leva was born in New Orleans, Louisiana, and raised in Houston, Texas. His poems have appeared in Smartish Pace, Scalawag, Nashville Review, Jubilat, The Hopkins Review, Prairie Schooner, and Best American Poetry 2020. Stephen is a Cave Conum Fellow and author of the chapbook Low Parish and the full-length collection The Understudies Handbook, which won the Gene Feldman Poetry Prize from Washington Writers Publishing House. Stephen holds an MFA from the University of Baltimore, where he is an associate professor in the Klein Family School of Communications Design. Hello and welcome, Stephen. Hey, thank you so much, Han, for having me. Um, it's uh, a great pleasure to be on your podcast. I love listening to the other episodes. Um, and I'm probably, I don't know, am I the first Levo to be on the, the podcast? <laughs> it might be excited, excited to be here. <laughs> so I'm going to read uh, the opening poem in my book, The Understudies Handbook. Um, and uh, The Understudies Handbook has so much of New Orleans in it. And I know we have like a little family connection from Louisiana from reading your book, Hand. Uh, so I was excited to to bring a little bit of um, little bit of that into the the podcast. So here's my poem, Primer. There's no New Orleans, only the pauses between parades. The city christens its own, each palm leaf brushing our esplanade, a wet asprigillum. You will be known here as a gargoyle knows each inch of stone it sleeps in but cannot wipe its tears. What has all this iron wrought? Our family intoning Zotico means the accordion's broken back, means another fiddle's whip over catgut, means there is a balcony for everyone to die on. What is French about these quarters is exile. All gardens to the backyard. Son, remember to tell your sons what whispers in the weary ear endlessly come here. Taste and taste is an inability to sustain innocence. No, not quite. Something like feathers plucked from a mask. Thank you, Stephen. That was beautifully read. Um... Gorgeous. And okay, so pronunciation, and I'm I'm not sure if this is just like across our recording distances, sure. but is it how do you say Zydeco? Is it I say Zydeco, you know. Um, says, it's probably it's probably Zyde, it probably is Zydeco. That's just my uh, accent, you know. <laughs> and, uh, but and, either is like either is either is acceptable. Okay. Um yeah. Zydeco, I, Zydeco, yeah. Brand new it, it's, word for me. It, it's really a, you know, it's, um, it's a, it's a, uh, it's a Louisiana Creole um, way of saying harico uh, or hi, green beans in French. You know, I can't even, I can't pronounce it well in French. And so it actually, it, it's, that, so that's, it's kind of bending of that, you know, um, and then uh, green beans uh, as a idiom in some parts of Louisiana are a way of saying like hard times because it's like all you had to eat, you know? So it, it's like, yeah. So Zydeco, Zydeco, either one is okay. Whoa, that is the coolest <laughs> etymology. And I was not <laughs> expecting that at all. I'm just like, <gasps> um, yeah, super nerdy, super, super yeah. nerdy about language. <laughs> I love it. Would you like to define um, Zydeco for our listeners? Sure. Um, so it's, it is uh, at its at its most foundational. It's a it's a type of music and a type of dance, right? So it's a music that often might be associated with Creole and Cajun folks um, in Southern Louisiana. Um, it has as one of its base instruments the accordion. Um, it can have a kind of um, a somewhat three three timing, so it it can feel a little waltz like, but the energy of it is very very high, you know. Um, uh accordion fiddle you know guitar you know it's 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 really um like so many things in southern louisiana a synthesis of a bunch of different kinds of music so jazz and blues and 
um, uh, you know, sort of kind of like a European um, uh, folk music, you know, there's, there's all that kind of stuff blending in um, some Spanish influence in there too. Um, uh, you know, so yeah. So the, that's the music um, often played at like reunions, parties, and the dancing of Zadiko is like, um, uh, uh, what's the best way to describe it? Partnered dancing. So it's either line, like like group line dancing or very like partner dancing, like you would see in swing. Um, so that that kind of thing is is the kind of energy of it. Um, and it's just you know, it may seem like to some folks who are not from the Gulf Coast like country it might it might have a like a kind of like a kind of ruralness a kind of folkiness to it so i think for folks up in the east coast or you know kind of going up in the northern part of the united states what might be the best analog is something like bluegrass but it's not quite it's not that's not per, a perfect analog because zotico has much more um it's rarely like lamenting. And if it is, it's just in the lyrics. Like the music itself is very upbeat, you know, like that, that kind of like rhythm and beat. Thank you so much. It's a brand new word to me. And yeah, my family's from Louisiana, but I've never been to New Orleans. Wow. So yeah, we're, you know, from like, Northwest, mm-hmm. um, chicken farming land. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so like, there's like a glamor and, um, just like, just even like the culture and the urban, it's just, that's, that part of is always far away from everywhere my family has lived. Like we're always in the sticks or the, mm-hmm. <laughs> the country, the rural. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Music is so important. Um, to the understudies handbook and it's not the only important thing. I mean, I, I was thinking when you were speaking about how it's the music, but it's also, you know, you play at the same time you're playing with the ode, right. Mm -hmm. Which is like a song of praise. So you Mm -hmm. also got that. Well, so it's like formally poetically um, woven in there as well. One of the things I'm beginning to realize is that, yeah, I'm so glad you brought up the ode because there's something, um, what what I see in both the ode and in kind of musical reference or musical influence um, in my work, um, and particularly in the Understudies Handbook, is that it's all theatrical, right? They're all all kinds of me imagining performance, you know, in that um, I'm very interested um, in the poem itself as a little proscenium, like a little a little stage in which you mount a performance of language. Um, and that idea, I think, as a as an aesthetic, is very freeing to me because you can take on different personas. You can come on and off stage. You can um, let the sort of um, scenery or the mise-en-scene, you know, be be change in form. Like that's how I might imagine form. Um, and I and I'm and I'm so convinced that the metaphors that we've internalized about what an art should or should not do or how it, it's done end up playing such a role in how we produce art, mm-hmm. you know? And so, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think other people um, may or may not have like thought through that, you know, I don't want to assume, but I know for me, um, internalizing the metaphor of a poem as a, a, a little stage, you know, gave me greater range of what I could bring to the to the work. But it's also, you know, motivated by the fact that I I previously was trying to be an actor. Like that's what my undergrad degree is in is in is in theater. I thought I thought that uh, the joke I always tell is I thought I was going to be the next Denzel Washington. None of y'all have seen me on TV, so <laughs> you know how that worked out. <laughs> um, but then my my in a in a hilarious bit of family stuff, my dad was like, oh you know, you wanted to be an actor and then you stopped that and decided to become a poet. <laughs> kind of a lateral move, <laughs> you know, mm. but it seems to have worked out. Uh, but yeah, so that that portion of my biography, I think, or, or just in my imagination, like swimming in my subconscious, had already absorbed something about theatricality um, that doesn't necessarily need to mean... Um, and, and and often in theater never means a kind of inauth- 
inauthenticity. You know, theatricality does not equal being fake or fraud, you know, or phony. It is it is the method by which you allow people to experience the art, right? We need the artifice. And so that became a freeing metaphor for me about how to produce work. And then it it just kind of bubbles up into like, okay, so songs are theatrical, um, uh, you know, uh, cartoons are theatrical, you know, this kind of like returning and returning to those different, those different, maybe perhaps ec ec ecstatic modes, you know, but. Yeah, that's that's what the the ode is kind of being linked to. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, I think opening it up to like theater and drama, and I love what what you're saying. And it it comes back to the conversation. <laughs> of course, we always start having an amazing mm -hmm. conversation before mm -hmm. I hit record. <laughs> um, but about poetic voice and speaking with your students and the idea of like finding your voice, knowing your voice, pushing for mm -hmm. your voice, advocating for your voice. Um, I would love if if you could like go back to what you were saying. Sure. Yeah. I'm I'm a little uh I'm always I'm I'm always thinking about, you know, as I said, like trying to get my students to think about the metaphors that they've internalized, but also thinking about um what kinds of ways in which have we taught um we as teachers or we as other poets um have taught people um um, certain certain ways of talking, certain like uh, a Lexus, you know, a kind of diction, a kind of, um, uh, you know, um, idiom that we've kind of thrown out that then gets absorbed and circulated in culture. And that that phrase, finding your voice, um, has become more and more troubling to me because I think, though it's never meant this way, I don't think this is actually the intention, but it suggests something external, um, that uh, is something out there to be found or something, or the idea is that you're going to discover it, right? But I find that for my students and for my teaching, it is more effective to say, what if you assume that your voice is always there? What if you assume that your voice isn't something that you need to discover, but it's something that you always operate within? You can never you can never not sound like yourself. And if that's true, then it may release some of the anxiety about, you know, am I just imitating, you know, in an uninteresting way? Well, no, even any any imitation that you might produce will always sound like you, you know, if you assume that your voice is something that you always carry. But I do think, you know, the 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 counterpoint to that or the the corollary to that is that if your voice is inherent, if it's something that's always with you you should all, also always think of it as dynamic you know so it's 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 both eternal but also not static it's it's uh, elastic elastic and eternal is the shorthand that i that i that i sort of i sort of say right mm -hmm. um and so that elasticity is what you're often maybe rubbing up against in that your voice is changing you know your voice can be many things and sometimes your subconscious and your imagination is ahead of your conscious, you know, way of recognizing that. So it's never not your voice. It's always you, you know, but what you may be experiencing when something sounds new, you know, or interesting or like, wow, what, what, what is this? Does, if someone says that doesn't sound like you in some piece of writing, what mm. you may just be experiencing is the expansion of your voice, you know, um, rather than um, some kind of othering. You know, mm -hmm. and so it's it's really it's really it's really that that I've because Han, I don't um, I think we waste a lot of time on arguments about um, things like you're trying to coach me out of my voice, mm -hmm. you know, or you're trying when you know, or you're trying to make me and, I, and I'm not denying that that happens like that could happen in a very hegemonic and very colonial way, you know, but I think uh, it it would be. You know, just to keep it 100, like a, a kind of metastasized way of, of kind of doing that is like there's one way to have a black voice. You know, a black voice should be doing these things, you know, in poetry should be sounding this way, should be, you know, ultra direct. Uh, you know, and n I would say most readers who are black, even if you're limiting to that population, don't think that way. And most scholars don't think that way, you know, and most other black poets don't actually think that way, you know, so then if you have absorbed that, whether consciously or unconsciously, what are you, what are you limiting yourself um, from that you might explore? So, yeah, I tend to think of, you know, what is the possibility of rather than 
arguing about, is this my voice or is this not my voice? Um, when we reframe it to say, your voice is always there. Now, what might you do with it? You know, mm -hmm. what, what can your voice be? Um, is, is another way to, to think about it. Yeah. So that was like a whole lecture on, yeah. <laughs> on it. Sorry. That's amazing. I feel like, you know, it's, I mean, it's a pleasurable thing that, that you can spend so much time thinking about voice. Um, mm -hmm. I don't find it to be navel casing. I find it to be very essential thought in, you know, it's like when I, I work with writing students all week long and I say to them like, Hey, one of the most important parts of writing is just when you sit and think <laughs> it's just, you don't have to sit down at the computer and be like, I got to begin this essay or everything's going to fall apart. Like, no, actually, if you just give yourself some time at, in front of your computer or wherever to sit and think about what you're going to do, that's essential. It's so, and that's what we try to create in lives is like space for art, space for time to think. And voice is, is part of that. Um, and it's complex and that's why it's pleasurable. And there are so many different facets. And, um, you know, I think a lot about, I work with young students who a lot of times haven't done much thought about identity. It's mm -hmm. the water they're swimming in and they don't realize it. Um, so a lot of times I pull out like Audre Lorde's, like I am a black feminist lesbian, mm -hmm. like, you know, she just like lays and, and not always like the surprise in their eyes. Um, and it helps them think about their own identity in their writing. But I think there is kind of a temptation towards voice, which is like, if you can just find your confessional, mm -hmm. you've got your voice. If you just know exactly, <laughs> yeah, like if you just, you know, so yes, identity is so vital, so important, such huge context in history. But at the same time, if you think that, you know, like your voice is many things, right? It's not, it's not just one thing. And, um, and I think that's why I just love your anti-confessional poems mm -hmm. in your mm -hmm. book too. And they are offering such a cool tension and such a, and kind of playful rejection. And, mm -hmm. um, and it doesn't feel like a situation where it's like a lot of times, I keep having to work with David Foster Wallace's commencement mm -hmm. speech. This is water with students this week. And um, mm -hmm. he, David Foster Wallace always feels like he um, wants to have his cake and eat it too. And, uh -huh. um, you know, he's getting paid thousands of dollars to give this commencement speech. And he's like, now I'm going to critique commencement speeches and this is how they work. And this is a joke. And this, and I, I hate it. <laughs> it's so yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a bit eye rolling, right? Yes. Like. <laughs> Yes. It's like if if irony is all you got, then you know, like you know, what are we doing? Yeah, yeah, I've definitely seen that essay just too much lately. But um, yes, would you be interested in reading one of your um, or sure, multiple sure. of your anti-confessional? Sure. Um, I'll start with the first one, um, awesome. anti-confessional one. This poem will inherit the earth. Flame on the forehead, palm oil on both palms. A preacher anoints a nightstand. Try not to balk. Like a ventriloquist, the poem repeats without opening its mouth. This poem wore a conch through, uh, slipped through its adolescence and caught a generation of conch shells to make Creole for hotel guests and tourists. This poem loves tourists about as much as a clean, fingernail-colored shore, which can erase only their footprints and not their eczema of plastics. This poem has an empty passport, has registered to vote left, and obsesses over ephemera. The poem self-publishes and declares all deities dead, except the writer of the apocryphal gospels. Every poem can only go down in flames. So this poem auditions for canceled TV shows in living color and living single. The poem cleaves a, a black lamb for covenant and calls it a lucky break beat. This poem arrives late in life, unable to comfort, unable to speak. So good. Thank you. <laughs> um, I it's always... playful, right? It's oh, playful. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Oh yeah. And I, I mean, I muted myself because I was like literally laughing. So like falling over my chair. Um, <laughs> the, 
This poem has an empty passport, has registered to vote left, and obsesses over ephemera. Um, yeah. Can you yeah, talk it, about what led to like writing this poem? And sure, sure. Yeah. Um, I was thinking. Um, uh, I was thinking about one of my grad school teachers, Valgina Mort, um, when she was here in Baltimore for a short time. She was talking. Uh, she's kind of. Uh, we, we we've kept in contact very much over the years and uh we were talking about confessionalism and she was like you know look at look at sylvia plath they talk about her as a confessional poet she confesses nothing <laughs> you know <laughs> like what does she actually confess in those poems you know <laughs> like like nothing and so she was trying to highlight that there was something um like the pleasure of Sylvia Plath's poems were was not in the revelation of taboo, but it's in the language, right? It's in the craft. It's in the way they're constructed. Like they are art pieces, not because of the tragedy of her life or the hardship that or the trauma she's in, endured, but because of, because they're well fucking made, you know, like you know, like that kind of thing. And so I tried to think a, a little bit, and this is not to push back against confessionalism in any way. But rather, um, you know, kind of thinking through, um, you know, what what would be the opposite of kind of um, confessionalism, and how does how does how does the, the the as we were talking about before the very artifice, the theatricality of poems, how does that mesh with the sort of um, uh, veneer that confessionalism is unguarded, that it's that it's not performative, that it is the raw truth, you know, but all of that is hmm. a lie, you know, <laughs> all, it, it is all performed. It's all constructed. It's mediated is the academic way we would say. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that it may be for me, what, what became powerful for me is to think about it as, well, what if I lean into the artifice of it? Right. What is an anti-confessional, you know, confession, <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. um, and so I, there's that, and there's probably, you know, um, a bit of Nicanor, Harara's anti-poems, you know, or anti-poetics um, in that, in, me, in my thinking there too, um, just applied to the subset of confessionalism. And so, you know, that, that, you know, that poem tries to take on the invented persona of a poem itself, you know, like the per personification of a poem, but then is just littered with like this diasporic, you know, references to black culture, <laughs> you know, um, which which became very, you know, uh, mm. interesting to me. And so um, it also, I think, is trying to reckon with, um, and forgive me if this sounds pointed, but um, the perception that I've sometimes had that for black poets, particularly black American poets, that publishers most want them to perform their trauma through poems in a in something that sometimes approaches a very minstrel like thing you know and i am i i get i i just get tense about that right and i don't mean just to be clear right i don't mean that there is something wrong with um or something that i think is detrimental to writing through one's pain right or writing about the things that one is um trying to engage with in order to um in order to process, right? But what I object to is that we're not going to sell your book unless you perform blackness in this particular way. We're not going to, we can't, we think there's no audience for this, you know, which is just a way of saying like, they think that the audience is not other black people, but white people who, who, who black, essentially what I object to is the fact that sometimes blackness is most legible to white culture when we are traumatized or dancing, <laughs> you know, and that, that is, and so confessional, right. The confession of our pain um, mm -hmm. becomes something that can be minstrelized and, and colonized. Yeah. And so I wanted to like push back against that, you know? And so then it's like, well, no, I mean, I'm not, you know, in this poem, I, you know, not, you know, there's like nothing, you know, that that is confessed there. You know, it is somewhat um, like various costumes, you know, but that doesn't mean that it's, again, Frank of Fraud. I think it's trying to work through the fact that, um, you know, uh, gosh, I love I love something. Sorry to be discursive, but I love something that Luis Gluck said, rest in peace, um, 
in a uh. in a, a essay she has a, called um, it's either called Against Courage or Mm. Uh, it's in her book proofs and theorems uh, book mm. of essays i think it's mm. called against courage um and essentially she says like well you know when we talk about the confession as courageous you know what are we really saying um the person who is confessing um a secret in a poem the people for whom that might seem shocking like you know are like unlikely to read that poem, you know, like, so there is this, like, how courageous is it if the person who you would be most afraid to read it, you know, is never going to read it, you know, and if the confession is to oneself, right, you're, it's self-admission, right, that the person who wrote the poem and then worked on it and, and uh, revised it and thought through the art of it, are you the same person who confessed it at the beginning? her presupposition is or her suggestion is that you have changed right the mm. act of doing the art has changed so then you're you know are if you're confessing to the self the self has become something different what has happened to the the courage of that confession you know like so i i mean yeah. all of that is kind of the like heady stuff that's wrapped up in that and wrapped in wrapped up i think in the other three poem the there's three anti-confessional poems in the book um so that's a little bit of, of the thinking there but mm -hmm. but probably i was just trying to have a bit of fun <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know oh that was gorgeous thank you so much for all of that i mean and i'm really grateful that you bring louise glick back because i always have um like <laughs> You can say it. <laughs> I have such a, I have such a, I have such a class chip on my shoulder, and um, whenever I try to read like, uh, particularly proofs and theorems, I felt that way at the beginning when I started reading. It was like I, it was like when I started reading Joan Didion's um, Year of Magical Thinking, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. I just I could hear I could hear the upper class, and I just, just Ooh, yeah, I just really want the working class poetics and i'm so resistant to something that's coming from above me and um and i know that and i know it's a flaw um but it's also like well who doesn't have to have a chip on their shoulder <laughs> like, right. Right. um and yeah. i and i'm really attracted to art that resist consolation um mm. even though consolation i think is one of the things art gives us like yeah. it's that yeah. coming back to like art does many things it can yep. do it all like mm -hmm. um but the fact that you close your book with um anti-confessional mm -hmm. three um is a really power it's like a powerful move um mm -hmm. and i have a poem that i close my book with which mm -hmm. is in some ways, just a horrible poem um, <laughs> for what it's having to deal with. But I oh, didn't, I see. I, see. Yeah, I didn't okay. want to end it because it's violent, and I, I didn't want to close my book on like the light has always been going down. I didn't want to uh -huh. close it on something that was like so feel good about yourself because I'm like no, like I think white people shouldn't sit around feeling good about themselves. <laughs> I don't actually mm -hmm. think that's helpful. Um, yeah. I think failures the acknowledgement of failure is productive yep. um and yep. so i also love what you're doing with failure in mm -hmm. anti-confessional um yeah it's, it's really yeah it's really sorry i, I mean i because no, no, no. there's another there's another poem called blame in the mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. in the that in the book and i gotta tell you i know that i was thinking a little bit about when do um that i think that folks in particular, this case, black folks need to be able to talk about despair, you know, um, in a way that uh, was very like present, just actually that is to talk about despair that doesn't necessarily mean nihilism, you know, but is like just, hey, look, I don't have this. I don't have this. I don't have this. I don't have all these expectations that get laid on me, you know, um, uh, what do I do, you know, with, with that? Um, and. I guess in the poem that I just read in Anti-Confessional, you know, I, I try to acknowledge, you know, as you, you use a great word there in terms of consolation in the, in the same, in the way that a poem can be very therapeutic, you know, I want to always make sure that no one confuses that with therapy, mm -hmm. you know, like you, it, it is therapeutic, but it it's not a replacement for, for going and talking to somebody to get help when you need help, you know? Um, so I think, and that, not only acknowledging failure, 
but limitation, right? Mm-hmm. There is a, there is a, like, I think we do poets a disservice if we don't talk about the limit of what art can do, right? Like, and so if you, because then I think we can guard ourselves against disillusionment, right? You won't be so hurt if you don't have unreal expectations about what art is going to do, you know? Um, and that doesn't mean to be the crusher of dreams. Dream your dreams, poet. <laughs> like, believe <laughs> You know, but then but then don't abandon them when your dream doesn't result perhaps in the wholesale change of society that you want it to. Right. Like recognize that you need other you need other poems, you need other people. Right. Like because ultimately that's that individualist, colonial, white supremacist thing like that's kind of connecting with it. Right. Um, So, yeah, I'm 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 very I, I don't know. I'm very kind of big on like thinking, thinking through those things, you know? Um, so I, you know, I just kept coming back to it, you know? Uh, and yeah, it's, it's tough. It's tough to find the way that, I don't know, like, what's the, what do you want to let have the last word mm-hmm. in your book? You know, is a really difficult question. Um, sometimes for putting a book together. Yeah, it is. Um, and I think that when there's no I don't know. I, when there's no tension, it's, I mean, it's interesting to me because when I was much younger, I, I mean, like in high school, I was obsessed with realism Mm -hmm, and I mm -hmm. think there's such a, you know, if you're like, wow, there hasn't been a lot of truth in my life, but like, oh, this form of art aspires to that. Um, and I mean, from where I am sitting, I can see a, in my office, I can see a print I have. It's not hanging on the wall. It's just propped up um, mm-hmm. by Georgia O'Keeffe. And it's nothing is less real than realism. And mm-hmm. um, I mean, just that, that art is something we make, we make yeah. it. And um, I think wanting, wanting like my young writing students to understand that like, it's a made thing. We craft it, we make it. Um, yep. But that there's like some heavy burden of authenticity and knowing oh, your voice. Oh, talk about it, <laughs> Like, like oh, this word. is real. This is legit. This is, uh, you know, 100%. Like, it's, um, which that just, it just seems like a heaviness. It just seems like a unnecessary, I don't know, weight, especially to put on young writers, I think. Yep. Um, and also- so concerned yeah. with it. It is the yeah. most common- it is the so I mean, and I'm not saying that we aren't, you know, but it is the most common thing I hear mm-hmm. is, uh, you know, the so I got to believe that that's because of how the joke I sometimes say is like poets are terrible at advice. We're just so bad. We're so bad at capital P poetry advice, advice about an individual piece of art, like one poem. We're great at <laughs> talking about big P poetry. We're terrible. You know, and so I just. <laughs> hear it right like because i know that that's absorbed from the culture right about uh, a consternation with um a an obsession with authenticity but that is the most problematic you know like concept you know um i i, I don't know like it, it is a bugaboo i I must, I must say for my for myself too um but i cut you off what, what continue what, what were you about to say there no i i mean i think it's just looping back into our conversation um and I mean, something that's come up when we've been talking is I don't even remember who said it, but the, you know, what is it binary, but a a stick you poke a bear with, you know, <laughs> it's, like, <laughs> that, it's like, it is helpful. It's helpful when it's provocative, right? Yeah. Like it's helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, but like in your anti-confessional one, you just read that closes the last three lines and the poem is written, um, almost entirely in, in full couplets mm-hmm. um, is the poem arrives late in life, unable to comfort, unable to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, and I find that like provocative and playful and truthful, like that kind of wading into difficulty, wading into the, I don't know space um, mm-hmm. that that's actually often for me, what art does best mm-hmm. Um that it's like, yeah, things are really difficult. <laughs> um, and I think there was like a moment in, I don't know, maybe it was probably grad school when I realized that the papers that my professors liked the best were always mm-hmm. when it was about difference 
or contrast mm. or difficulty. Mm. You know, it wasn't it wasn't the things that I neatly packaged up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, those mm. claims actually didn't work out so well for me. Yeah. <laughs> Simplifying yeah. didn't work out for me. Mm. Um, even though that's what I really, really wanted because it made me feel safe and it made me feel like it, I understood it, things. And <laughs> yeah. Sim- sim- simplicity has a certitude to it, right? Like, and that, that we, who doesn't want certainty, right? But wow, you know, poems that are overloaded with certainty are just didactic, you know, <laughs> like they, they, they don't, yeah. you know, they, they lose something about the uncertainty that is just very mm-hmm. human for us mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. um but and yeah, a huge I, difference between simplicity which is can be so beautiful and truthful and then reductiveness <laughs> so oh. it's like yes. um, because i've been reading lucille clifton's collected oh talk about i knew you were yes. gonna say i knew that you were <laughs> gonna say lucille clifton She's the best example. Yes. Um, and I posted this amazing quote because it's got the foreword by Toni Morrison. Mm-hmm. Um, and I posted this quote to Blue Sky um, the other day because um, Toni wrote, Toni Morrison wrote, my general impression of the best of Lucille Clifton's work, seductive with the simplicity of an atom, which is to say highly complex, explosive mm-hmm. underneath an apparent quietude. I mean, no notes. I know. <laughs> no, I know. That is right. That is just right. I, I mean, I'm a big, as as I I would say, both uh, or along with many um, African American poets, you know, we look to Lucille Clifton uh, in this sort of, um, you know, both ancestor and 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 uh, uh, touchstone way. But in a very practical way, and um, she helped so many of us, um, or helped help people who then helped folks of another generation. So her 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 effect on on black literature and then more broadly the American arts and letters is very direct because of the way that she was, you know. And for folks in Maryland, because she taught at St. Mary's for a lot for a very long time, you know, there's an even you know. A kind of another layer of connection. It's like, no, we saw Miss Lucy. Oh, you know, like the 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 Clifton House is here in Baltimore. You know, like the home that she had, and you know, Sydney Clifton, her daughter, like turned that into an artist residency and different stuff. So, like, you know, it's 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 so real. But you know, she she you know, her work. I mean, I think about the poem. I mention this every time I do light talks. I think so much, and I often teach the poem um, "Wishes for Sons," right? And it, it, if you know this poem, is a poem. Uh, ostensibly about uh, some different things around menstruation, you know. Um, I, you know, I wish them a, 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 I wish them a small town and no Seven Eleven. You know, I wish them wearing, wearing a, a white dress. You know, mm-hmm. and so the, you know, I tell us the simplicity of the context and of the syntax is so deceptively um, alluring that you might miss the craft, right? But everything that she is building in that poem leads to this moment, like. In which she says, you know, you know, I'm, and if I'm paraphrasing incorrectly because I don't have the poem in front of me, but you know, she says, um, make them think that they have understood arrogance in this world, then bring them to the gynecologist, not unlike themselves. You know, I'm like, you know, like we aren't playing any games. You know, like you thought this was, you thought this was like just a poem about a particular kind of conceit, and she just nails your soul to the floor. You know, with you. Know, think they've understood arrogance you know oh my god who can't who can't and this is what i ultimately say about this i say ultimately slay that's funny ultimately (laughs) you know about this you do steven though yeah right (laughs) um is it it is it is so like it is it, it opens up this aperture in which who can't relate to that like across gender across um generation across time you know across culture right like who can't understand um our own capacity for arrogance our own assumptions you know um so she does this really interesting critique that that happens there but it isn't um it isn't uh it isn't trying to uh use syntax to hide something or obscure something it's just very open um and I just I just love that that mm-hmm. way that mm-hmm. her work 
sort of is resonant. Um, yeah. You know, so I, I often say like, if anybody um, needs an introduction to poems in which they don't read a lot of poems, Lucille Clifton is always the person I recommend. There are other people I recommend, you know, yeah. but I'm like, you know, if yeah. you, if you want to like have a baptism in contemporary poetry um, and you don't want to feel alienated, you know, which I recognize is possible. Um, Lucille Clifton is, is the threshold, you know, we, we can all walk through. Yeah. And it's, I mean, you know, coming back to what we've been talking about voice, um, she has so many mm -hmm. and I love when she like multiplies her own appellations or her mm -hmm. own name. And so you've got mm -hmm. Lucy, you've got, mm -hmm. um, light, you've got Lucille, you've got all mm -hmm. these ways. Um, and I love it when she addresses herself and, mm -hmm. um, I guess something that I'm seeing in the collected that I've never seen when you don't really glimpse as much in an individual poems mm -hmm. is just, um, I guess the stuff that's kind of in, in tension with, and sometimes the apparent, <laughs> apparent um, mm -hmm. simplicity of her lines. And I say that because everyone knows, <laughs> you find out very quickly in writing how difficult it is to write a simple line. Oh, um, it's <laughs> it's like jumping in the air and making it look easy for a dancer. Like it takes so much, so many muscles to get up there. Yeah. Um, and it's like the, the witchiness and the <laughs> magic and the... Um, I mean, just especially I think I think it's Morrison's forward that, you know, kind of gets into um, the way she would speak. Lucille Clifton would speak with her her deceased mother mm -hmm. and the Ouija board and spirits and um, and like very like matter of fact about it, which yep. is just incredible to me. Um, mm -hmm. And I just and also I'd forgotten I maybe I knew that she mm -hmm. was polydactyl when she mm -hmm. was born. Um, mm -hmm. And in like the 12 fingers, the way that mm -hmm. weaves throughout her work across her lifetime. Um, and, you know, it's like what it, it takes a lifetime to know yourself. It takes mm -hmm. a life, it, maybe not even, right? Like, um, but I think that that work, that you know yourself through others, Mm -hmm. through your kin, through your relations and the way she dedicates poems to others and she her poems live in community with each other. Mm -hmm. Um it's just I can't recommend enough just reading a poet's collected. Like I always feel like it's an, it's a whole ass education. <laughs> like yeah, and, yeah. and it and it, it just highlights too how much um I mean, if if one cannot be overwhelmed with a kind of like, I could never, you know, <laughs> um, it just is such a lesson in range, you know, mm -hmm. um, it's such a lesson in range and allowing yourself to change over time. Lucille Clifton has Superman poems, you know, <laughs> like, like, I mean, it really is. Yeah, I, you know, it is so funny because yes. there there's a way in which. I read her work and it felt like the whole world was open to her. Like nothing, she did not compartmentalize, which is what I hear a lot in like, you know, I can do these witchy things and talk to my dead mother, but I can also talk, you know, to this fictional, you know, um, you know, comic book character created by two Jewish men, you know, like it's like all of the, everything that encounters English is mm -hmm. on the buffet, you know? Um, and I, what I'm really talking about is the kind of multiplicity you know, that, that exists in her work. That's very kind of resonant to me, something that's very important um, mm -hmm. um, to me. And I, you know, yeah, I just, I just, um, I don't know. There's something very comforting um, and also, well, I guess what in something you were just saying about her work, I just, you can always tell how curious Lucille Clifton was like she's very curious about the world about herself about spirituality all these things so like there is a, a kind of ambient curiosity in the language that infuses the syntax whether it's simple or not right because what what it ends up being you know to me uh is clear like mm. the, the work is so clear you know and and how subversive is clarity in a world gone mad, you know, <laughs> like that. I mean, that's what feels like so awesome about, about her, Thanks. about her work. So yeah. 
I'm with it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and since we have invoked comics, I do mm-hmm. feel like, cause that this was also coming up for me when you were talking about theater mm-hmm. and, um, drama and just like being able to do like being able to do something through character um which i mean right like it's like there's like i and poets who are just like known for their persona poems and then like on a spectrum and then on somewhere on the spectrum there's like a lucy clifton kind of speaker Mm -hmm. um even though i do think it's speakers but you know that um Yeah. the apparent right like mm-hmm. what is what is the tool or the play like how mm-hmm. is it happening um but did you want to say something about comics or your work with sure 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 yeah um um i can i can actually i can read one from my uh new manuscript uh, i've got a book coming out from blair there in north carolina um uh and it will come out in the spring of 2025. Um, but there is a poem in here to a character um, that most most readers will know the character as Static Shock from a cartoon um, from the late 90s. Um, but Static is um, one of a few black characters created by a, you know, uh, made by a black creator. Um, so like, some people are familiar with like Black Panther, but Black Panther was not made by Black people, you know, so we can track in the history of comics, um, you know, uh, like these big like dearths of um, Black characters made by Black creators. You know, we get some in the early like 30s, um, uh, some romance comics by uh, some creators in Chicago. Um uh, uh, we get um, a, a, a comic called Lion Man from something called Negro Comics, you know, and then we don't get anything from the 30s until the 60s, <laughs> you know, um, in which we get an underground comic called um, um, Ebon, um, and the, the name of the character is Ebon, like Ebonics, um, and then we don't get anything else until the 90s. And mm-hmm. so there's this, you know, static shock, this character static um, was created by Dwayne McDuffie. And so I have an ode, you know, we're talking about odes, an ode to Static, but it's really, um, it's really, even if you don't know who Static is or anything about that, the poem is is so much about the search for seeing oneself in art, you know? Um, so uh, yeah, I can I can read that and talk a little bit about it if, if that works. Um, I would love that. And um, may I request that because I know we're getting towards um, you, you have a class to teach and we'll be wrapping mm-hmm. up our conversation, but um, would you be open to closing with um, anti-confessional three? Yeah. Happy to, happy to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Amazing. Thank you. Um, okay. This is, this is ode to static for Dwayne McDuffie. Um, you know, in, in a very Baltimore fashion, we're having some, um, uh, police sirens roll through right under my <laughs> right under my door. Um, okay, oh, to static. Look, it was nice to know Urkel wasn't the only choice we had in our orbit. Another black nerd with covalent cool we could share, a diasporic subatomic dap. We loved you, like Rakim verse vibing every Walkman on the block. Static, even your government name said classic guide, Virgil Hawkins. We were in the dark woods of Spinarax, mostly in a blizzard of Ubermensch, pulping the newborn 90s pages. And there you were floating on a trash can lid, unashamed, spitting game to find sisters like the glow-up of Oscar the Grouch. Oh, blue bodysuit and fitted cap. Oh, gold overcoat like Return of the Mac. A look three stacks might sport on an album cover. You were out saving citizens in style. Uptown fades slicked every head. We understood the buzz of a tape rewinding, of only being mentioned in the news via mugshot. So we sought other panels, comic books, the mirror you held up to our future. Static, you were a milestone for kids like me, whose brown skin ran the whole gamut of electrospectrum. You know, so that's my my shout out to to you know black creators and black comic uh, book heroes. Um, 
uh, which, you know, in some ways is like uh, just my my nerdy way of saying, you know, um, the desire to see oneself in something else or in, in art is just never goes away. You know, you want to know yeah. like you belong in the family of things, you know, mm-hmm. to quote Mary Oliver. <laughs> yes. Yes. Oh, it's powerful. Thank you so much for reading from your new manuscript. Um, and it's not your first title from Blair either, mm-hmm. right? No, it is. It is. Yeah, that's well, the uh, the anthology. Ahead. I was thinking. Oh, uh, right. Yeah. So I'm in. <laughs> I, yeah, I'm in um, the an Afrofuturist anthology called "The Future of Black," um, that was edited by Lynn Lawson and Gary Jackson and Cynthia Manick. Um, and they really, you know, they did a really cool thing uh, in that they hit me up right at a time when I was just about to go up for tenure. Um, so they, they, uh, you know, having some work published there in that anthology, and then also them inviting me to be on a panel at AWP two years ago, um, really just was so, I mean, they weren't thinking about, Hey, I want to help mm-hmm. Steven out, you know, with his <laughs> tenure portfolio, but they, <laughs> they, they just were right on time as, That's as the church awesome. folks say. You know, that's um, but awesome. yeah, that, that's actually how I that I got to know the editors at Blair. Um, and um, then you know, I pit, I pitched it to them. I, I just said, Hey, I've got a new manuscript, and hey, and I think you can relate to this. Like, the Understudies Handbook, it took me seven years mm. to get it published. Mm. You know, it was some biblical shit. Like, you yeah. know, <laughs> like I was yeah. like, been working on this for seven years. Like, why is it so hard? Why, yeah. you know, and I and I had people. You know, saying again things that were well-meaning, and I know it's the type of, like I said, the type of stuff we just say to each other. Like, we just have to believe in the book, you know. And I'm like, mm-hmm. wait a minute, I do believe in the book. That's why I sent it out. I need someone else to believe in it so they will publish it. <laughs> you know, there's no lack of belief over here. Like, I- <laughs> we need to convince some other people. <laughs> like. Like how can they believe? You know? So real. <laughs> you know, but it's but it's the thing. It's the it's the thoughtless things we mm. say to one another. You know, from the from the position of mm. you know already having it. You know, the people who said that the most mm. to me were people who already had books. You know, yeah. um, and so I I realized I, I I had internalized this thing where you know okay I have my first book things will get easier. And it was just as hard, you know? Yeah. And so I said, well, let me, let me work in a relational way. Let me, let me think about people who already have a relationship to my work. You know what? I'm not being uncouth by pitching, you know, you know, again, this is this poor kid stuff, you know, I'm not being, yeah. you know, trying to find the right rules yeah. because you don't know what the mm-hmm. rules are, you know? Um, and, and so, yeah, so Blair, Blair just, felt right you know they felt like a a good and they and they wanted it right they they you know Mm -hmm. they they i'm I'm often very um i tell my students a lot to the degree that you can don't be precious about your work if someone wants to publish it consider it um don't operate from a position as if you'll never write anything better you know i'm gonna hold this poem Mm. for poetry magazine or Tin House or whatever, you know, I'm not trying to name drop, you know, top yeah. journal like that, but like, yeah. I want to say hold out for them. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I always try to check in with myself. It's like, am, am I implicitly saying that I'll never write a stronger poem, you know, and therefore I got to hold on to this thing, like, like a resource, you know, how capitalist, you know, like, you yeah. know, you'll, you'll probably write something better. So, you know, why not, why not let someone who wants to engage with it, um do okay. so why not let readers discover it who want to you know who want to read it which is not to say don't advocate for yourself make sure you're getting a good contract make sure people treat you right and that's not what i'm saying you know mm-hmm. i'm not saying be uncritical but don't you know not be precious not to be precious about it um yeah and maybe that's not the best word you know just to be open i guess is the best way to say it um so yeah i i realized that um, I mean, I have to tell this really quickly too. Uh, I know we're getting close, but like um, one of my grad school teachers, Valgina, that I mentioned, um, wonderful poet, someone who's a dear friend. Um, I was asking for a blurb for the Understudies Handbook, um, which she generously gave. And um, she was just very encouraging. She's like, Stephen, this book is very good. 
you know, like I think that you could have held out um, for a more prestigious press, you know, which was affirming, you know, that's that's like nice to hear, you know, like, okay, you believe in the work. Yeah, great. I mean, it's, it's nice to hear. But, you know, I took a breath and I said, Valgina, you know, those places that you're describing, those more prestigious places, I sent it to them. They didn't want it. <laughs> You know, like, yeah. you know, like they said no, yeah. you know, like, so I can't, I, I got a bird in hand, you know, like I got, yeah. I have to go with the mm-hmm. folks who are willing to take a chance, you know, on me. Um, because, you know, I've already shot my shot and yeah. no one is confused. And I, I mean, I know that I, I suspect I should say that that you can relate to this too. No one is confused about the doors that open once you have a first book or the barrier that it presents. Like we should not pretend when we talk to folks that yeah. the like just the context of having a first book opens up HR doors for mm-hmm. employment, you know, opens up invitations, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's not a perfect metric. It's not even a fair metric, but yeah. we can't pretend like it doesn't matter. It matters a whole lot. I mean, would you agree? Or what do you, what do you think about it? Yeah, it's it's a struggle. <laughs> it's like something mm-hmm. it's cause there's a lot of scarcity. There's a lot of not enough opportunity. Um, a lot of us don't feel very comfortable advocating for ourselves and it's much easier to advocate for other people. <laughs> um, and so like what you're saying about relationships and reaching out, like, yes, like that's very encouraging for even like me to hear. Um, and you know, holding, I do think there's something about like, if you have misgivings about a press or if you feel in your gut, it's not right for you. Oh, please, dear God, like listen to yourself. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, believe me, every press mm-hmm. is going to fail you in some respect. I've mm-hmm. I've heard, you know, poets with penguin complaining about the lack of marketing. So it happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so you want to feel pretty confident. You want to feel pretty good. No, there's going to be disappointments um, yeah. and you're going to have a second book you'll try to place and a third and um. And it's, it's so easy. I think, again, it was like a penguin poet that said to be like, well, you know, it's the work that matters the most. And it's like, well, yes, but if no one ever sees the work or if (laughs) it's not published, you know, um, and I think about Linda Gregg's, you know, we manage most when we manage small, like Mm -hmm. that, you know, small attention is good. It's a good thing. Um, and you know, it's, it's, it's like writing clearly in <laughs> in a world <laughs> where it's like clarity is not, not for sale in the same way. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, that, that, you know, and I, I just, again, right. I'm, I'm, maybe I'm just sensitive. I've been accused of being sensitive, <laughs> but I'm, 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 I pay attention to, like I said, the way that we give advice or we say things to each other that, that can sometimes feel careless. Right. Yes, it's the work that matters. No, but no one is confused about that. Like, there's, like, <laughs> you know, like there's not like yeah, what, what are we, yeah, right, <laughs> right. But, but what I am, what I'm sensitive to, I should say, is what gets obscured in that kind of uh, um, you know maxim, right? What it, what the, the quickness of that, what it, what it prevents uh, in conversation is something like this. I asked. Um, most of my friends when I try, was trying to get the Understanders Handbook published. How did you get your book published? Did you get your book published by doing a contest? Or did you get your book published by something relational like you met somebody at a party, you met an editor, someone introduced you, mm-hmm. you know, somebody gave you the hookup, mm-hmm. something like that. I'm not talking about nepotism. I'm just talking about relations, relationship, to be clear, right? Um, and, and 90% of them, 90 percent of them said I did not go through a contest or things like that I knew somebody right so like if it's the work that matters and we all can agree we also need people to make these connections we need to be clear right we need to tell people don't be afraid to advocate for yourself or to talk about your work in in a way that highlights that the work matters you know like but if we don't like if we don't make space and some, and, and you know what, I know what, I know what it is. Like some people are waiting on permission, you know, and it's unfair to say, well, you should just know in your heart 
that you don't need permission. You should just be out there doing that kind of thing. Well, the, the, the other way to do that is we can invite people. We can invite them. You know, we can ease the burden. I, I, am, I am fully convinced that the only thing that matters for me as an artist is how have I made it easier for the people coming behind me? How? Like, how did I do something to not to demystify the process, to introduce them to somebody to, you know, and, and again, I am not doing that in some way of like trying to highlight work that I think is subpar. I simply mean like it's tough out there and it doesn't have yeah. to be. It doesn't have to be so hard. Like, so what what can I do to make it a little bit easier, um, you know, and, you know, without yes. the sort of like, you know, like ego that somehow I'm going to solve it all, you know, it's not yeah. that it's just like, I can do this. <clears throat> this is one thing I can do, but I just got annoyed with so many folks who, uh, I mean, I could go on and on about it, but they, they spoke in a way that did not seem to make it easier for people, but is that is it? It was as if they were setting up barriers. Yeah, like they would tell younger poets, "You need to do this, this, and this," and they had done none of those things to get their book published. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like so, why are you wasting their time? Like, why are you setting up metrics in in these? I don't know. So, so clearly, I'm. I feel a certain some kind of way about it. <laughs> no, I thank you for saying all. But I think, I mean, with my Press River books, like we really try to like transparency with our authors with each other like talking about some of these difficulties um and i just when i hear that someone spent two or three thousand dollars just sending off to contest that always strikes me as like i mean it's a failure on the part of our, our publishing models and opportunities but also i just like yeah going and asking other people like how did you publish your book um i am 100 percent with you it is it's through knowing someone it's through reaching out um you you have to have a reason to care and mm -hmm. you know trying to be picked up out of you know five to a thousand other poets like that's hard because we're all working hard mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. so yeah i just think that the relationship is really really important and i think that's such a a wonderful thing to highlight and bring forward and remind um, our listeners, many of whom are incredible writers looking to place yeah. manuscripts. Yeah. So be, I mean, my, my way of like um, making that practical, like if relationships matter, then be kind. Yeah. Be, you can be kind. You can be yeah. kind to each other. We should be kind to each other anyway, you know, right. but you know, it's not Pollyannish to be yeah. kind because you know, like we were talking about with Lucille Clifton, I think she very much understood Gwendolyn Brooks saying we are each other's magnitude and bond. Like what we need each other, you know, mm -hmm. um, and and the world is often, you know, the world is often just out to wound us, you know, in, in so many ways. We don't have to help it along by wounding each other, you know, or mm. or pretending like it was the you know, let me just speak for myself so it doesn't seem like I'm directing at anybody. I, I had re I had I recognized maybe in year six of trying to get the the understudies on handbook polished. I asked a group of friends, hey, am I being too cautious about calling in favors, about asking people for help, asking introductions? I asked Tim Siebels, you know, hey, you're published at Etruscan. I know you've been a great mentor to me would you mind making an introduction? And he was happy to do it. And they were That's very amazing. kind. They didn't accept it, but they were, they were like, hey, we, we love this manuscript. We published so few poems, you know, it was, you know, I but I had internalized like something about people are going to think that I'm a shill, you know, or that I'm some kind of like, you know, grabbing for power or something like that. And I was very yeah. sensitive about not being exploitative on relationships, you know, which I think other people, a lot of people can relate to. Yeah. But, you know what? When I began to examine that further, like do some more internal work, I said, Stephen, is it that or do you want the narrative that you made it on your own genius, that it was your work that was discovered, that you didn't need anybody's help? You know, is that oh, yeah. what's really underneath all of that that's preventing you from asking for help? Mm. And, I, and ultimately I had to say, yeah, like there was a little bit of that there. And then I said to myself, you know what I want more than the narrative of I did it on my own? The goddamn book, you know, so I can yeah. let go. I can let go. Like that narrative is not more important to me than the opportunity 
to be a part of the conversation through having a book, right? And the book yeah. is not the end all be all. Please don't under, misunderstand anyone, but um, like I, I, I was holding on. I had made pre, yeah. you know, like uh, you know, uh, it's something underneath all of that action, which I thought was politeness, was actually just ego. It was actually just that I wanted that I wanted people to think I was smart and talented um, and that I could use that narrative to, to support that. But ultimately that narrative didn't matter to me as much as, you know, the ability to, to, you know, enter into the conversation by being with the press. And I don't know, it was, it was a lot of hard work internally, but you know, I guess, I mean, that that's what I try to say, you know, I try to bring that and be honest about that, you know, to mm-hmm. other people. It's like, be be self-reflective about yeah. the reasons you may or may not be ha- asking for help. You know, yeah. it's okay to ask for help is the big, is the thing I would say to summarize, right? It, you really can, you know, most people will meet you halfway. Um, yeah. So do it, you know. I think all, all the time of um, Yates, it is myself that I revise. Like, <laughs> Like, it's true. It's it's true. Stephen, thank you so mm-hmm. much. You you are talented and brilliant, <laughs> and I could literally talk here for hours with you. Um, <laughs> so thank you so much for being on the podcast. Um, do you have time to close this out? Yes, of course, of course. Thank um, you. and it's you know to I say all of that and then end with an anti confession. <laughs> <You know>? Yes. <laughs> uh, um, so I'll just say a quick word about this. The uh, the poet Taylor Bias wrote a really good review of, of my book um, in which she talked about the fact that um, this is the only anti-confessional poem the, the, of the three that are titled anti-confessional. Um, this is the only poem that uses the I. Um, so, you know, at the very end, you know, she sort of said in a pretty excellent reading of the book, it's as if the understudy finally speaks, you know, like finally like takes off the the, the personas of other things. Um, uh, and uh, for anybody who uh, likes 80s music, you'll you'll recognize something from Steve Windward in here. Um, uh, uh, and um, this was in many ways um, my way of letting love have the last word in my book. Anti-confessional three. This isn't a secret. I have failed to love with the patience of hibiscus root, whose buds bloom with no thought of being tea. I have not loved my innocence, overdressed in morning light. How can the earth keep turning to the thing that will kill it? Oh, sun. Bring me a warm hill in August, an echo of a fragile and immortal green, a better remembrance of my grandma's eyes. I have failed to forget. Love is one of many higher choruses, and yes, there are octaves of light that linger. Can we still call love love anymore? Or have we avoided failure? Every ode must fail if there is to be a higher love. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, uh, shout out to Higher Love. Um, yes. Whitney Houston version is is good too. <laughs> you know, an excellent excellent version of that. But um, it, it's just such a pleasure to talk to you and and to be on the podcast and to this feels a little bit like the extension of the conversation we we were about to have in at awp <laughs> um and, yeah. and one can't can't always make time for um so i'm so glad that we we did make time for it um, yes thank you so much uh, Stephen. and i hope everyone gets our copies of an understudies handbook and the understudies handbook and we will all be looking forward to your next title yeah from yeah, there the common sense of beauty as it's currently titled. (laughs) Thank you. Thank Mm -hmm. you so much. Thank you.